This year, over the, the next few weeks, we are going to just be recentering. Um, we, one of the things we want to make sure that we're constantly doing is remembering what it is we're doing here and why we're doing it. Like, why do we show up on Sunday mornings? Why do we get plugged into gospel communities? Why do we share the gospel with our city? Why do we try to live a life of holiness? Why do we do those things? And what, as a church, are we specifically attempting to be about? So the next few weeks, we're going to be calling back to our vision that we rolled out in the fall of this last year, just that we as a church really want to focus on three things, the, that we want to focus on Sunday gatherings, we want to focus on gospel communities, and we want to focus on missional discipleship, meaning like we're not just teaching you knowledge so that you have more knowledge. We're desiring to teach you so that our city can be transformed. And we believe that if we do, do those three things really well, that what that's going to lead to is kingdom-minded multiplication. So a, a desire of ours is that by 2030, we would see two autonomous church plants in our city. Just, we want to plant two churches in the next eight years now. That's a goal of ours. That's something we'd like to see happen. And, and then from there, we would just like to be a church that continues to plant churches for the purpose of bringing gospel renewal to our city and beyond. Now, let me explain why we got there and how we got there and why I think this matters. So, we have a ton of churches in our city. Why would we need more? Tons of churches, but we also don't have much gospel renewal. Like, just look at the landscape of our city for a moment. Like, we, we don't have... Like, you don't come to El Paso and think, the Lord is here. Like, you don't show up in our city and feel like God's doing something special right now. Now, maybe you're stirred and you see future revival that the Lord's bringing and the Lord's inviting you to be a part of that. But right now, if you come to our city, and, and I think, again, not just our city, I think this is symptomatic of a lot of cities, there's not much to be excited about spiritually speaking. I would say that we're not just in a desert, a literal desert, we're in a spiritual desert. Now, how does that happen with as many churches as we have in our city? Like, how, how do we get so stuck that we have as many churches as we do and we're not seeing gospel renewal, we're not hearing testimony after testimony after testimony of what God's done in people's lives. Like, I don't know about you, but that has not been my experience in this city recently. I hear a lot about what God did 50 years ago. I don't hear people talking a lot about what God's doing now. That, to me, reveals a problem and typically, if we, if we look out, the, the easy thing is to blame the culture. But, but more often than not, if there's issues within the revival aspect of a city, it, it has to do with where the church is at, where we're at. And so, so we, we are 
desiring to plant churches, but not just an extra church in this city. We're, we're desiring to plant churches that would bring about gospel renewal. And so I think we have to ask, like, why, why is that not there already? Why are, why are we not seeing that in our city right now? And, and I think it's because there's a mindset where Jesus is just added to my committee. Now, let me ex explain what I mean by that. Like, I... I have a, a job and I have a, a board on my job and, and I just want Jesus to be a part of that board, but I don't want him to be the one that makes all the decisions. I just want to, you know, consult him when I can. He's, he's there and I do agree with a lot of the things he says, but really at the end of the day, it's up to me to make the decision. Like, I just want him on the committee. I want to consult him every once in a while, but I don't actually want my life to be centered around him or to, to follow him. But, but we talked about this when we were in Colossians just a few weeks ago. Jesus does not come to just be a committee member. He's not here to be just a side dish to our Christianity. He doesn't come to be an opinion that influences us. He doesn't, he doesn't come just to give us advice and not get the final say. Like Jesus is Lord and he comes to take over. What I can confidently say uh, about our city in, in the the. I think roughly two and a half years I've lived here, and just as I've been praying through this question and asking this question, is I think we've got a lot of people in our city that love to consult Jesus, but not a lot of people that have given up their lives to him. We've got a lot of people in our city that are happy to check the boxes on their Christian activity checklist, but not a lot of people that have had their lives turned upside down by Jesus. In Acts chapter 17 through 19, we see Paul is preaching in Athens and he's preaching in Ephesus. And this thing starts to happen where so many people are being transformed by the gospel that actually changes the local economy. Like the local economy is built off of uh, people who are creating idol worshipers and they go out of business. <laughs> Like they, they, they have no more customers to come purchase handmade idols for them. Like it just changes the, the city so much to the point where these business owners start a riot to make it seem like it's the Christian's fault for the riot. And what, like the gospel turned that city upside down. Earlier in the chapter of chapter 17, we see that same claim that here is Paul, the one who came to turn the city upside down and turn the world upside down. The, the gospel shows up and it does some things and it messes with a city. I think so often we read Acts or we read, you know, the stories of Jesus in the gospel and we'll say, well, that was, you know, New Testament Christianity. That's not what we see now. Like, I, my desire is that our church, that our city would actually line up with the things we're sitting and seeing in the Gospels and in Acts. I would love to see our city starting to just turn upside down because of the work and the way that the Gospel is moving forward. Yet, I think we carry a defeatist attitude with us. We just kind of believe, like, that's not how God moves in our day and age. I'm getting ahead of myself. Here we go. Let's get back. Um, so the gospel had such, taken such a hold in that city, and I just want us to imagine for a moment what that would look like here in El Paso. Like, what if the gospel took such great hold of our city that all the strip clubs shut down? That every single abortion clinic just turned into pregnancy help centers like Westside and Pregnancy and Fatherhood Solutions? 
Like, what if we stopped hearing so many stories of child abuse, infidelity, domestic violence, and failed marriages, and instead started hearing stories of reconciliation and restored families and children growing up without a checkered past? Like, what if we started to see that in our city? What if we started to see it turn upside down? What if we started to see biblically serious, spiritually vibrant, gospel-centered churches planted in our city that started to turn neighborhoods around just by their presence, which then started to permeate throughout the city and then into New Mexico and then into Juarez and all throughout Mexico? Like, do you realize how strategic our position is here? We have so much, so much work ahead of us. And the only way that this happens is if we start to actually connect with who Jesus is and what he's doing. We start to to ask, where are the gaps between my life and what I'm seeing in scripture? And we start to ask, like, man, what what could happen if we started to see those very things happen here and now? Like, I mean, I just, I think of this city and, and the strategic location it is to, to Juarez and to even just the Fort Bliss. We have transient, transient military personnel. Like, what if we just saw, like, people getting stationed in El Paso and then they got sent out and they just started taking revival with them? we have to believe it's possible. <laughs> we, have to, we have to believe that God could actually bring renewal in our city and beyond, and that does not happen just by mere Christian activity. That happens by lives confronting and encountering the real Jesus, not side dish Jesus or prosperity Jesus or best buddy on the weekend, sometimes Jesus. The real Jesus, gospel renewal. We are looking for lives that, that are transformed, not just behaviors that are changed. We are looking for people who are pursuing Jesus, not just people who want to mark a box on their religious checklist. And so we're believing for gospel renewal, and that's what we want to see in our city. That's what we're believing for our city. But so many of us have stopped believing that God could actually work that way here and now. And he does. And he does throw through, through three movements, and it's Jesus plus community plus mission. This is what we want to be about here at Jesus Chapel. It's Jesus plus community plus mission. This is actually what Christianity is. It is what we are about here. So let me go ahead and explain that. We're going to spend one Sunday on each of those little uh, words there, Jesus, community, mission. This week we're going to talk about Jesus. And so uh, what I want to start with is this idea that we have been saved by Jesus and to Jesus. Um, let me explain. We, we see all throughout the New Testament this, this phrase that Jesus is Lord. Now, in, in the Bible there is no context for Christianity that is partially invested. Like, there's just nothing. 
There's nothing where it's like, well, yeah, sometimes I'm a Christian, sometimes I'm not, and sometimes I go to church, and sometimes I just really don't feel like it. I want to go, you know, watch the Cowboys play in the playoffs. Like, that's kind of, like, that's, there's no context for that in Scripture. There's no context for partially invested or culturally invested. Like, yeah, there's a lot of Christians that I hang out with, and so it just seems like the right thing to go to church, and I've just been doing it for years, or, you know, maybe I was born in the church, and so I just kind of stuck around because it seemed to fit. Like, that's not anywhere in Scripture. There's no context for culturally or partially invested but not walking in allegiance. The very claim that Jesus is Lord in the first century was subversive to the kingdoms and the powers at play. You and I are saved by Jesus and unto Jesus. That's, that's what we are saved for and to. And so, so many of us who, who really wrestle with this idea of, well, I, you know, I, I want to follow God and I want to follow Jesus, but really I just kind of want to know what God's will is. Or, you know, I'd really just like him to give me wisdom on this specific scenario. Like, you can find God's will for your life pretty easily in Scripture. It's that you would be sanctified, <laughs> that you would walk in greater holiness. It's like God's will in Scripture is always attached to us becoming more like Christ. <laughs> that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That we would grow in holiness in Christ's likeness. In fact, there are Scriptures that tell us that's actually what you and I's lives have been predestined for. Like, your destiny, if you ever wonder what it is, is to look more like Jesus. That's, that's it to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, to look more like Jesus. If you are in Christ, your future is not some obscure, maybe one day I'll figure out my calling and purpose. Your destiny is clear as day. God intends for you to look like Christ. In fact, he's predetermined that that would be your future. You do not have to wonder what God's will is for your life. It's clear to look like Jesus. So we've been saved by Jesus, the, the real Jesus, and this is the, the will of God for our lives, that we would look like Jesus, saved by Jesus to Jesus. Not the various pictures of Jesus we see, though, the real Jesus. So here's what I mean like that. Uh, some of us have a picture of Jesus, or the, that's parole officer Jesus, or, um, you know, so the, the parole officer Jesus is he's got a really big stick, and he's ready to hit you with it every time you slip up. And then as, as soon as you slip up, he, he hits you with the stick, and then he reminds you of the carrot he's dangling. Don't slip up again, and you'll get heaven. Remember that. And so we have this view of Jesus where he's either mad at us, but sometimes it comes with reward if we do the right thing. But that's actually not the, the real Jesus. And I think another view of Jesus that many of us have is like hippie Jesus. He's just uh, driving around in old VW, frolicking through the fields, tickling Peter. You know, he's got like a flower crown on. And so like we have this view of Jesus where he's just really happy to spend any time he can get with us. He's never really mad at us. He's never really like desiring that we would walk in greater holiness. He's just really glad when sometimes every once in a while we ask him for help. And so we have these two views of Jesus, I think on both sides of the spectrum. You have the always angry at you or always just happy that you thought of him. And neither one of those are pictures of the real Jesus that we see in Scripture. 
Like Jesus is the lamb that was slain and the roaring lion. That's the way he's pictured in Revelation. He is both substitute for your sins and victor over your sins. He is both our friend and brother and yet also our teacher. He is both gentle and lowly, sympathizing with our weaknesses and at the same time frightening and worthy of all our love and adoration. I mean, if we pay attention to the scriptures, when Jesus shows up post-resurrection, it's like the disciples are frightened. And then when he shows up in Revelation, people are frightened by him. Like he is, he is not somebody to just be like, oh, hey, how's it going, dude? Nice to see you. You look great today. The scar is really healing up nicely over there. Like, no, that's not, it's frightening. And yet, he welcomes us. He is both the crucified suffering servant and the righteous king on the throne. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. It's all or nothing. No such thing. Christianity is continually being confronted with the only one worthy and then laying down our idols, laying down things we've lifted up onto the throne that don't belong there and turning to him in repentance, collapsing into his arms of grace and being welcomed into life. All right, so that's Jesus. And then we see that we are saved into community. Christianity is communal. It is not isolated. You would have to do so much work to make an argument that as Christians, we don't need the church. Like you, you actually, I don't think you could make an argument. You would be a straw man argument at best. Like you and I have been saved into community. We have not been saved to be isolated Lone Ranger Christians off on our own or to be out in the fields and just say, you know, I just really meet God in the wilderness because, you know, God's not in temples or houses of, like, and so you misquote scripture and you misuse it. And, and so, like, God, God has saved you to be a part of a local body of believers, to be a part of a community. Christianity happens within that context. And, and then finally, like, we aren't just saved to holy huddle somewhere until one day the earth burns up, because that's how a lot of us view the end times. Um, we are actually saved to be sent out into mission. You and I have been saved by Jesus to Jesus, where our lives are continually being conformed into the image of Christ through a community that loves us and cares for us and deeply knows us. And then we are sent out into mission to bring more people in so that we can do that whole thing again. So over the next few weeks, what we're just going to do is we're going to revisit that vision of ours, of of what we're trying to accomplish with Sunday gatherings, what we're trying to accomplish with gospel communities, what we're trying to accomplish with uh, our our missional discipleship. And and we are then going to attach those to these three helpful words, Jesus, community, mission. We're going to do that through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So this morning and the next couple weeks, we're just going to be spending time with the church in Thessalonica, in the the first book of Paul to the Thessalonian church. And we are just going to see where I think Paul is really encouraging them in this direction. And so uh, 
this will not be a full-on exposition. Like we will not hit on everything in the book of First Thessalonians, but we're going to try and cover the main movements of Paul's writing, the the thrust that he's after in this book, and we're going to hopefully, hopefully, um, attach that to what I think God's calling our church to be. Uh, I want to, before we get into the actual text, just talk about the church in, in Thessalonica. So uh, the church in Thessalonica, we first see them show up in Acts chapter 17. So Paul, the apostle who plants most of the churches in the New Testament, he, uh, he's out on mission. He shows up to the, church, uh, to the city of Thessalonica. He goes into a Jewish synagogue, and over the period of three weeks, he starts to reason with them about how Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And, and through that process, some Jews come to know the Lord. But what we see uh, right after that is that most of the church comes from Greeks, non-Jews, no experience with Jesus before, idol worshipers, those who would have had physical idols set up in their homes, like that's who most of the church is. And then there's this little fascinating uh, tidbit of information there that several of the leading women in the city like, it seemed to be important that this was a church of Greeks and women. Like, that's what Paul, or that's what Luke, the author of Acts, really wanted to draw out. <clears throat> so we see this happen. They've, they've just come to know the Lord over a period of three weeks of Paul's preaching, and the Jews in the synagogue start to become jealous of what's happening in the church. And so they, um, they begin persecuting the new converts in the faith. So I want you to just imagine with me this for just a moment. You, you got saved, and immediately after you get saved, you're just trying to figure out what it means to be a believer. You're like, man, this Jesus dude is kind of awesome. Like, look at all the things he did for me. He died for my sins. And then you're, you're just like, okay, so what does holiness look like? Okay, I better throw out these idols, and I better, you know, you know kind of clean up my life in this way. And then you're just a baby Christian, like haven't even attended new believers class, haven't even been baptized yet. And like somebody breaks down your door and grabs you and drags you onto the street in front of the entire city, parading you in front of the city, brings you before the city officials and says, this individual right here claims to belong to another nation. This individual right here claims that his nation is greater than America and that it will actually subvert the kingdoms of this world. And so much so that this individual right here doesn't even believe the laws of the land and he's going against them. And then you're beaten for your faith that you just figured out you had. That's what's happening in this church. Not more than a month after they've met the Lord, they're being dragged through the streets, beaten, required to pay fines to the government for their faith. So this happens, this persecution starts to happen. The, the church in Thessalonica is like, look, Paul, we love you, man, but we got to get you out of here. You can't stick around. And so they ship Paul off and Paul goes off and here this baby church is on its own. No pastor, no spiritual instructors being persecuted and beaten for their faith. And so Paul 
as he's traveling, begins to worry about this church a little bit. He begins to become concerned. He's thinking back to that persecution. He's thinking of how young and how early on in the faith they are, and he's thinking to himself, I, I got to connect with this church. I need to find out what they were doing. They were so receptive to the gospel, but I'm so worried that the persecution was too much for them. And so he sends Timothy. Timothy is somebody who Paul calls a brother and a son in the faith. He is a co-laborer for the gospel. He is Paul's number one companion. Probably, from what we can gain from Scripture, the person who means more to Paul than anyone else. And he sends him back to the persecution to check on this church. That's going to matter in a couple weeks. So Paul hears a good report from actually other churches, and then he hears a good report from Timothy, and he writes a letter to them. And in this letter, we see three main themes, three main movements. The, the first is he's calling them to become more like Jesus. The second is that he is pointing to the beauty of Christian community. And the third is that he calls them to continue imitating his ministry. He calls them into the cost of Christian mission. And so his three main movements are Jesus, community, and mission. And so today we're just going to focus on that first movement. If you have your Bible, go ahead and uh, open to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to kind of jump through uh, and just kind of see how these themes are, are drawn out from the text. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 and 10. I promise my sermon will not be as long as my introduction. So... Um, Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned, from God, or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Go to chapter 2, verse 13 for me. This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which works effectively in you who believe. And go to chapter 4, verse 1. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. And then chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So Paul begins to, to hear about the faith of this church uh, from other Christians in the region, and, and he writes, uh, encouraged by their testimony, and this is the testimony that he has about them, that they have turned from idols, they've received the word of God as the word of God, and it works effectively in them. Then he, he continues to tell them that he is praying that they would continue to look even more like Jesus. And finally, he finishes the letter with this striking phrase that he is confident that God will continue to sanctify them. So uh, I want to take each one of those. The, the first is turned to God from idols to worship and serve the living and true God. 
What we see throughout this letter of Paul is that following Jesus is a life of sanctification towards holiness. It is turning from idols, turning towards God. Like if we were to go throughout scripture, the word repentance shows up a ton. That's what that word means. It means to turn, to turn from our idols, to turn towards God. That's repentance. But, but many of us, and I think this happens often in our world, we set up what we'll call counterfeit gods, idols. Uh, St. Augustine talks about a, a reordering of loves. It's, it's living a life that is patterned after Christ requires us to be able to evaluate our hearts and evaluate what we love most. So, we need, you and I, need to be able to love things in the right order. Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, so many of you maybe have just started a, a new diet plan, or uh, maybe you just started exercising in the beginning of the year, and um, you probably uh, either got sick, or maybe just you are like a normal human being, and you like sugar more than you like the idea of looking good. And so what, what happened earlier on is your heart loves that donut that Bonnie offered you this morning much more than you love the idea of fitting into your jeans. Like that idea is more attractive to you. And so your heart needs to be reordered. So similarly to us, the, the, the way that we operate is typically that our hearts are, are centered and and more often than not, centered on the wrong things. So when we have an issue of following the Lord, it's, it's not typically because we just don't want to, it's because we love something else more. Right? So like, why do I not want to walk in continual confront, confrontation of my sin? Because I love it. Why do I, I not want to, to give to the church, even though the, the, the or give to the needy, because in the Bible tells me to do that, because I love my money and I love buying new things more than I love the idea of walking sacrificially. Why do I struggle with placing my hope in the future of Christ's return? Because I like certainty more than I like unknown. Like you, you and I are, are struggling constantly with our hearts being placed on the wrong things. And, and the battle of the Christian life is to reorder our loves, to remember and reorient our hearts to the, the love of God as first. This is why the great commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. Like it's a reordering of our loves. The way towards holiness and sanctification, the way towards having a life that is transformed by Jesus is a proper ordering of our loves. But our hearts, in the words of the great reformer John Calvin, are perpetual idol factories. They are perpetual idol factories, meaning your heart is constantly creating up something new to love. And my heart's doing the same thing. We are constantly loving the wrong things. So as Christians, it is so important for us to be able to identify where we've set up counterfeit gods, idols who we've loved too greatly. We need to turn from those and towards God. Like God was doing in the First Thessalonian church, they were turning from their idols and turning towards God. 
That is the goal of the Christian life, turning from idols, turning towards God and having our life shaped by a reordering, turning from and towards, replacing with a greater affection. I've used this analogy before. Uh, You know, most children under the age of two go through separation anxiety with their mom more specifically than their dads. And so there was a time in our life where Julie needed to actually, you know, take a shower like most moms do. And you can't seem to do that as a mother. And so we had a child who had separation anxiety. And the way to combat that was not to just like rip him away and run as fast as I could. It was to offer him a greater love. So for a time that was outside, if you've seen the height of my son, you know, food probably has to be up there. Like, There was a re, like we had to replace one affection with another affection. And it was easier to allow him to give up because there was another affection that was placed before him. Reordering our loves. The secret to change in our lives, to following Jesus well, is to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, identifying our idols and dismantling the idols of our heart. So how do we identify when something in our life has become an idol that we're worshiping? How do we do that? I think uh, uh, Tim Keller is pretty helpful here. Number one, uh, we ask the question, where do our thoughts effortlessly go? Like what occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What What do you regularly think about that brings you comfort and joy? I think the second way we can do this is just to ask the simple question, how do I spend my money? Uh, Where your wallet most effortlessly opens is typically an indicator of where your heart's at. Jesus even tells us that where our treasure is is where our heart will be also. So where is it effortless for us to spend money and where is it not effortless for us to spend money? Where is it really hard That'll give us a pretty good idea of where our our heart is. I think the third thing we can do is to ask the question, what is your real functional salvation? Like when everything starts to, to hit the fan, what do you move towards? Is it distraction? Is it comfort? Is it Jesus? What do you have to have in order to be happy or to consider yourself okay? Is that approval or reputation or power over others or financial advantage? What is your real, not professed God? Fourth and finally, um, I think one of the things that, that we have to pay attention to as well is our most uncontrollable emotions. Like, when do you find yourself angry or stressed or afraid or in a moment of despair or a deep sense of guilt? When do you begin to overwork trying to just keep up? Like, what sparks that? What is your just default state as a human being? Is it self-preservation or is it reputation management or is it running to distract from real life or is it bitterness and frustration with others? Each of those things will give us an inside view of what's really going on in our heart. 
Where our allegiance, our comfort, our hope, where those things functionally lie, where our joy functionally lies. Like if this thing is removed from your life, you're having a bad day. Or this is the power you go to to change your situation. Like I actually think this is why so many of us don't pray. Because we've made a God of self. We've made a God of our own accomplishments. We believe more in our own work than we do in the work of God. We believe that our productivity, productivity is more important than sitting with him for a few moments. We have functionally placed ourselves on the throne. <clears throat> like, where do we most naturally move towards? The Christian life uh, for, for you and I is repenting when we see ourselves giving into these various idols, confessing that we have counterfeit gods, and then setting our minds and hearts on Christ, appreciating, rejoicing, and resting in what God has done for us in the gospel, that through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we are free from sin's penalty. We are being freed from sin's presence, which constantly drives us towards counterfeit gods. And one day we'll be finally freed from sin's presence altogether. You see, you and I need to continue looking at the gospel because it is through seeing Jesus that we actually recognize our need and are grieved to the point of repentance. But it's also through Jesus that we recognize God's love for us and are fueled into joyful love for him. And by loving him, we're able to dismantle the idols of our hearts, replacing one affection with another affection. Tim Keller begins to say this in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. He says, if you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. So let me explain how this works practically. Um, there, uh, my, my wife and I's life uh, just continues to be busy. We've just, we've tried to, you know, make some changes and then we make other decisions and, and life just continues to get busy and then we decided we're going to add another kid to this and um, so uh, we just wanted to move more into insanity and um, what, that, what that means for us is we have to be really good at prioritizing. And so there, there's three kind of things we've talked about and we've set up as saying like these are the, these have to be the priority, priorities for our family. Like it has to be our relationship with the Lord first and foremost. And then it has to be our family and then it has to be work. Then it has to be ministry. Then it has to be whatever else comes after that. And, and, and here's why. Because if my family becomes first on that priority list and God becomes second, I actually can't love my family well. I've put them in a position that they don't belong. Similarly, if, if work becomes first and not God, I've put ministry and put too much on ministry and on my job and on this church that you guys just can't live up to. Because you're all wonderful people and you're terrible gods. Like, if, if my priorities are not straight, where my relationships are, my heart is not first and foremost centered on the Lord, like, I'm just going to be out of balance, and it's going to, my wife is going to crumble under the weight of my expectations, and my son will crumble under the weight of my expectations, and you will crumble under the weight of my expectations. Because I am an inexhaustible, needy person, and the only person who can handle that is Christ. 
The only person who has an inexhaustible well of an ability to give is God. Like, you don't have that. My wife doesn't have that. I don't have that. We all have inexhaustible need, and it has to be placed in the right place and prioritized accordingly. Like, man, your family is a really good thing. Your job is a really good thing. Ministry here is a really good thing. And if those things get out of order, they become idols. They become things that need to be replaced with our affection towards God. When they take the the first place, when they become ultimate things, it will always lead to our destruction. Only in the light of God being first and foremost in our lives can we appreciate his gifts for what they are. Like, I can feel a tension in my life when these areas get out of order. I can feel a pull in my heart when I start to put more of a priority on my work here than on my family. I can feel a pull in my heart when I start to lift up my family or work above God, which is so easy to do. There's a tension and a pull and a weight that begins to eat away at me. So, so what I'm personally trying to do is I'm trying to love my family out of an overflow of my love for God. And I'm trying to love this church out of an overflow of the love I have for my wife. Because that's the way that life functions well. When I properly prioritize and order my loves in such a way that it actually allows me to love things better. And this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that they will continue in this process of dismantling, seeing Jesus, loving him more, and becoming more like him. Right? We start out by seeing that they have turned from idols to serve the living God. They have received the word of God as indeed it is the word of God. And then chapter 4, verse 1, continue. We encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. Continue to do so. That's what we want to do here. We want to continue in the process of dismantling our idols, of seeing Jesus, loving him more, becoming more like him, and from that position relating to the world rightly. And so just so you know, this is who we're about here. We're about Jesus. That that is first and foremost the priority for you and I here and for our church here at Jesus Chapel is that we are a people who are continually desiring to become more like Christ, turning from idols, turning towards God. We are not after nominal Christians who attend every once in a while and tithe when it feels right. We are after people whose lives are committed to Jesus. That's what we're after. Not after your money. We're not after your time. We're after you becoming more like Christ. That's what matters most to us. That's what has to matter most to us because if we desire to see gospel renewal in our city, then we have to see our lives look like this process of turning from idols, turning towards the living God, seeing the gospel in word and in deed and in power in our lives. We have to see that. But what happens if we get this order wrong of Jesus' community and mission? What happens if community becomes the most important thing? We'll, be, we'll become a fragile church. 
and we'll actually lose Christianity because what will be most important is that people feel okay. <laughs> and I, man, I love you. And I really hope that you come in here and you feel cared for and cherished, but I also hope that you come into our church and you desire to love Jesus more and you recognize where the idols are in your life. Like that's my desire for you is that you would look more like Jesus. And that in doing so, we would have a community that's sustainable and actually encourages one another towards Christ. I think also, though, if we put mission up too high, if mission becomes more important to us than Jesus, then we're going to create a community that's more worried about doing things to earn God's love than from a position of resting in Christ who has earned God's love for us. Instead of following him, we're going to be following our numbers and keeping track of the things we've accomplished. And we'll actually walk away from Jesus just desiring that we get as many converts in the door as possible. No, Jesus comes first. It comes first that our, our loves are rightly ordered towards him. From there, we come to a community of people that encourages us towards Christ, that loves for us, that loves us, cares for us, cherishes us, and points us towards Jesus. And from that, we invite people into joyful pursuit of Jesus. From that, we step out into mission. From that, we step out into renewal. And so this is what we're doing on Sunday mornings. We are re-gospelizing ourselves. We're prioritizing our relationship with God. Like, oh, we talked about this earlier. Our hearts are idol factories. We need Sunday mornings because we are idol worshipers. We need Sunday mornings because we have a belief problem. You and I don't struggle with unbelief. We struggle with believing in the wrong things. We struggle with believing that politics are going to save us or that if we could just get one more job, it's going to save us. We struggle with believing that if maybe my family would just not be so hard to live with, I could actually be a decent human being. Our, our struggle is not belief. It's belief in the right thing. And so Sunday mornings is this, this place where we come and we, in the words of Eric Mason, worship God because it is the mechanism by which we tell ourselves that we're not the most important thing in our life. We combat idols by bringing worship to the one and the only God who is worthy of worship. We come together with a clear declaration of praise and worship to the God of the universe in this space. We cultivate our hearts by proclaiming this truth. It's not about me. It's about him. He is the one worthy of worship. We set our focus on God, encouraging our love for him, looking to him. And as we look to him, we love him more. Reorienting our hearts to what is true and good and beautiful. And in doing so, we set our minds on the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. And so my call to us as a church this week is just this. Would we be open to just encountering the real Jesus? Would we be open to a life that is, that is not just nominal affiliation to a church, but is instead worshiping him, repenting of where we have placed other idols on the throne, reorienting our hearts to what is right, to Jesus being the one on the throne, that's what I'm after. I'm not after altar call Christianity where you said a prayer 30 years ago. I am after your life transformed. And that's what Jesus is after too. Doesn't want to be a committee member. 
He doesn't want to be a side dish. He comes to take over. And he does so by giving us reasons to love him. I want, I want you to pay attention to me, or pay attention to the text, not me. I mean, me too, but I actually want you to listen. That's good. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, this is the last text we'll look at, and we'll be brief here. Paul says this. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Paul's desire for their life, my desire for our life here as a church, is that we would continue to become more like Jesus. We would continue in the path of sanctification, that we would continue turning from idols and turning towards God. And here's the good news about that process, is that God will sanctify you. <laughs> like, if it is his will, and it is, then we know that he will accomplish his will. We know that we can lean into the hard work of dismantling idols of our life, knowing that God is with us in this work. Like, he is with us in that. He strengthens us in that. He will help us. He will accomplish our sanctification. And all we must do is see him and love him, respond to him, and believe that he is indeed with us in this work. God is with you in the work of your sanctification. You are not left alone to that process. He is with you. And so when we make this call that our desire is that we would become more like Jesus, that we would dismantle the idols in our hearts. We are not saying, go do this on your own. We're saying, do it with the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, with the living God who has set in his purposes and his plans for your life that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's our desire. And that's what we believe God's after, and that's what we want to see our church be after, Jesus. And I believe that through that, we'll see renewal in our own lives, and that renewal will start to have a trickle effect into the rest of our community of believers here and into our city. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to texts like this in there. They're not easy to preach. We would much rather we would much rather uh, just talk about the easy things, Lord, and yet here in this text we have a call to turn in repentance. And so Lord, this morning I, I just pray that for those in here who are feeling that pull on their hearts, Lord, just to continue turning in repentance back to you to believe the good news of the kingdom, to um, turn from idols and counterfeit gods to serve the living and true God. Lord, those of us in here who are feeling that pull and that pressure, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and you would remind us that you indeed are with us 
and that you have not saved us to be off on our own, Lord, but you have actually gifted us with a community of believers who is all after that same thing, to become more like you. And so, Lord, help us in this journey. May the God of peace sanctify us completely. And we thank you that he who calls us is faithful. That he will surely do what he says he will do. So we enter into this work of turning from idols, turning towards the living God confidently, knowing that you're in it with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.